Well, it is a, uh, a joy to be with you. Always good to uh, meet the rest of the family. Isn't that right? We may have different mothers, but we all have the same father. Amen. So it's a joy to be back in Maine. I think the last time I was in Maine was 25 years ago, maybe somewhere up near the Canadian border. can't even remember where I was anymore. So it's good to be back. What a beautiful, beautiful state you have. I'm not sure, you know, if that's true during winter, but uh, certainly this time of the year, it's a glorious place, and the place I said to my wife, I said, boy, I could easily live here. This would be great, but again, maybe when there's, uh, when there's two or three feet of snow, that, that uh, doctrine may change rapidly, so. <laughs> Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the uh, Book of Kings, Second Kings chapter 6, and uh, I want to... Look at a story about somebody that lost something. Nothing worse than losing something, isn't that right? It may not have an incredible value in one sense, but uh, if you lose it, it may be your contact lenses, it could be your password to something, and you think, what was that password, you know, and uh, even though it doesn't have any significance as far as any material value, nevertheless, you know, if you can't remember it, you've got a problem. Uh, but... Uh, you know, I'm sure all of you have got stories here of losing somebody or losing something and so on. This is a story again, and the Bible is full of stories lost and found. I like to call the Bible the lost and found book. You know, we have uh, so many individuals, we were all lost, isn't that right? We're all in the lost and found department. Hopefully you're in the found department. If you're still lost, you can be found at the end of the meeting. So, But uh, anyway, the Bible is full of stories like that. The man that had two sons and he lost one of them. The woman that had uh, ten coins, she lost one. The man that had a hundred sheep and lost one. You know, we got uh, Saul out looking for his father's lost donkeys and in the process became the king of uh, Israel. We got David who went to fight with the Philistines and by the time he got back to Ziklag, he'd uh, lost everything. His uh, wives had been taken, his children were taken and so on. I mean, there's all types of stories about uh, people that lost things. But this is a story in the setting is a Bible school. Not an average Bible school, but a school of the prophets. If you have ever studied this, you know that at least traditionally they say that Samuel was the one that founded the school of the prophets. After Samuel died, it was taken over by Elijah. After Elijah was caught up, then Elisha assume the, uh, the leadership of the school. We know for a fact that there were at least 50 students. If you go back to chapter 2 of uh, Samuel, you'll find out that uh, there were at least 50 students. Could have been more at this particular time. So here is a Bible school, uh, male only. Uh, no ladies to distract them, I guess, but uh, at least we're not told of any ladies. But uh, they were there because they were young men that wanted to move in the things of God, wanted to learn the uh, the voice of God, operate in the Spirit of God, and so on, sitting under this incredible man of God, uh, Elisha, although I always uh, say Elijah was uh, greater. Elisha is never mentioned in the New Testament. Elijah is mentioned over and over again. And I know all my charismatic Pentecostal friends will tell you Elisha, you know, uh, did twice as many miracles as Elijah and so on. But uh, on the cross, they said, you know, we're, he's calling for who? Elijah, not Elisha. You know, where is the God of Elijah, not Elisha? So it's not, uh, it's not how many miracles you've got. There was something about Elijah's life. But anyway, I'm getting off track already. Uh, but uh, Elisha right now is in control of the school. 
And uh, I want to break it down. I've got about 10 points, and uh, we'll get out of here by midnight. No. Uh, we will finish early. I assure you, there is a clock, or there isn't a clock. Oh, there it is, over there. Now I see it. Hard to read, but uh, we'll get there. Let me uh, break this down. The first thing is uh, their evaluation or their discussion. Now, you won't read that if you're looking at this particular uh, portion of Scripture, but if you meditate, you will uh, come to an understanding that these students got together and they're doing a time uh, of uh, evaluation or a time of examination. I never liked exams. I don't know about you, but I never did very well in school. I was always down there supporting the rest of the team. Um, I was one of the foundation members. But, um, but exams, you know, are not, uh, not very pleasant. They reveal, you know, who you are and what you know or what you don't know most of the time. And uh, even a physical exam, most of us don't like to have a physical exam. Uh, it may reveal that you've got, you know, high blood pressure, low blood uh, pressure, some other thing. But uh, the Bible exa- uh, exhorts us to examine ourselves. And I think it's good every once in a while to sit down, maybe with a piece of uh, uh, paper and a pen, <coughs> excuse me, and to uh, do an evaluation of your life. Where am I going? What sort of uh, progress have I made over the last six months, or the last uh, year, and so on? And so these students have got together, and they're having a time of evaluation. Now, they're not looking at the past, and uh, we shouldn't do that either. You know, forgetting those things which are behind, we press on. But we should look at the future. Where am I going? What are my plans? What is my purpose? What is my goal? What do I hope to achieve in the next uh, number of uh, weeks or months or whatever, spiritually speaking here, I'm talking about. And so they've had, again, a time of evaluation, a time of examination. And uh, the next thing is their dissatisfaction. Their examination has revealed that they are not satisfied. They're not satisfied with where they're at. They're not satisfied with uh, uh, their their present uh, situation. And uh, I trust that you're not satisfied either. I live in a state of constant dissatisfaction. Not discouragement. Discouragement is paralyzing. Discouragement will get you nowhere. But I live in a state of constant dissatisfaction because dissatisfaction gives you motivation. Some of you arrived here, no doubt, in a Ford of some sort. And if Henry Ford had been satisfied with the Model A or T, whatever one came first, you know, we'd still be driving around in Model A's and Model T's. But he was not satisfied. He said, this thing can be improved, the engine can be improved, you know, uh, windshield wipers or whatever, these things can improve, the tires can be improved, and so on. And so today we have all these, you know, luxury vehicles that uh, Henry Ford would, uh, you know, won't even know what they were anymore. Um, But spiritually, we should not be satisfied with our life. There should be that constant state, again, not of discouragement, but dissatisfaction, where we are constantly striving in a good sense for more of God, Uh, pressing into the things of God. Even Paul, who was caught up to the third heaven, saw things that uh, were unlawful for him to utter. Even at the end of his life, you'd think this man had achieved his goal. He said, you know, not that I've already attained, but I press on. That should be the uh, state of every single one of us. There should be that longing after God, pursuing God with all our mind, soul, strength, and so on and so forth. And so there is a place here of uh, constant dissatisfaction with these one. And then we pick up the story officially. Uh, the next one is their limitation. Why were they dissatisfied? 
because the place they were living in was uh, too small for them. Depending on what translation, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. One translation says it's too small for us. In other words, we're in a place of restriction. We're in a place where we, uh, there's no room for expansion. There's no room uh, to move out. We're restrained. We're confined. And I think many of us find ourselves that way spiritually. You know, you're confined. And uh, I look at my life again, if I'm honest with myself, I think I'm confined when it comes to the realm of faith. I'm confined in other areas. Some of you are confined in, uh, you know, your love for other people. You just find it difficult and so on. There's a restriction, if you like, in your life. And these uh, uh, 50 students, and notice this is not one rogue student, if you like, uh, making all these um, things happen. But it says, now the sons of the prophets. In other words, collectively, and they come to Elisha and they said, behold, the place we were living Uh, is uh, too limited for us, the place where we are living. In other words, it was a collective decision, and that's why I came up with the first two points, that they had a time of uh, examination, a time of evaluation. Otherwise, this could not have happened. And out of that examination or evaluation, they come to that uh, realization, listen, we are not satisfied with where we're at. We're dissatisfied. And so they go to Elisha and said, "Uh, listen, uh, you know, there's no room for expansion now. We've got to move. We've got to do something. And uh, that's a good place to be in, where you can honestly say, I need to grow. My faith needs to grow. My uh, knowledge needs to grow of God, Uh, whatever it is. You know, I've been too restrained, too restricted for too long, and it's time for me to uh, make a change. And so they've got this place again where, you know, maybe for a while they were satisfied. It's like a young couple, they get married, maybe they get their little, uh, first little nest somewhere, you know, let's say it's a loft apartment overlooking the water, and, uh, you know, they're, they're happy, they've decorated it exactly the way they like, they've got their friends over, it's the place where they enjoy going home at the end of a, a busy day, and so on and so forth, and two years go by, and they think, you know, this is our dream home, you know, this is the, the, the place I'd like to live the rest of my life, and then... Uh, the husband comes home one day and his wife's in tears, one of those things that men don't understand, and uh, what's wrong with you, you know, and, uh, and she's really happy, and, uh, but she's crying, you know, again, those are things that uh, live with your wife in an understanding way, but, um, but uh, she's pregnant, and uh, she announces the fact that I, you know, I'm pregnant, and uh, not only am I pregnant, but we're, you know, we're going to have twins. And immediately they decide, this place that has satisfied us will no longer satisfy us. This is a one-bedroom apartment. You know, we, meet, we need to move. It's too restraining, it's too restricting, and so on. So there's times when we have satisfaction, but we should constantly, again, strive for more. Again, the limitation. The next thing is the decision. They make a conscious decision to do something about it. I think many times we can evaluate our lives and yet never do anything about it. We can acknowledge very freely, you know, I'm limited in my faith, I'm limited in this area, that area, my knowledge of God is not the the best, and so on and so forth. But then it's another thing to make a decision, a conscious decision, I'm going to do something about it. Isn't that right? They were not just talking here. They were not just saying, listen, you know, this place is too small. I don't know if they had a, a new intake of students that were coming in. The Bible doesn't say why it was too small. It could have been that, you know, there were 50 uh, beds and uh, now there's another five uh, people coming, showing up or something. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. 
but they did, do make that decision. And uh, notice what they say there in uh, verse 2, please go with us to the Jordan. The Jordan is not a very popular place. The word Jordan means to descend. It was a place of uh, separation, the place of death in a way. You know, the way we grow and the way we expand is by decreasing, not by increasing. Isn't that right? I must decrease that he might increase. And uh, Jordan is a place, again, where we go down. God is not interested in uh, your agenda. He's interested in his own agenda. You know, it's not your best life now or whatever it is. It's, uh, it's God's life only. Isn't that right? We've got to die. You know, these days we've got all these uh, coaches trying to help us achieve our goals and dreams and so on. No, it's all about God. I, uh, I've always said that uh, spiritual maturity is uh, when we are no longer about God being about our business, but we're about his business. Jesus, as a young man, said, I must be about my father's business. To me, that defines spiritual maturity. Immaturity is when God must be about my business. You know, Father, bless me. Father, do this. You know, and God becomes a sort of servant. Yes, what can I do for you next, David, type thing. But it's when I get interested in what God is doing uh, that then I'm on the pathway to maturity. I want to be uh, laborers who are laborers together with him, at least called to be laborers together with him. And so here they have, again, this decision, I am prepared to go to the Jordan. I am prepared to die. We will never make any headway unless we are prepared to get out of the way and allow God to uh, crucify our desires and flesh and motives and all of those things, take them to the Jordan. Again, the place of circumcision, place of separation, the place of death, and so on. But they are prepared to go there, and uh, so they've made a decision. The next thing is their uh, determination. They said, let us go and make a place. In other words, they're prepared to work. Again, it's another thing to make a decision. I'm going to be a, you know, a man of God this year, a woman of God. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to seek God. I'm going to get involved in evangelism, whatever it may be that God is challenging you to do and so on. And you can make that decision. But then, you know, there's the hard work. They said, we're going to make a place. I find in the, the Word of God that God never chose lazy people. Isn't that right? You know, when he decided to establish his kingdom, he didn't go down to the unemployment line in the middle of Jerusalem, pick up a bunch of slackers that were lying there, you know, with their backs to the wall and so on, and say, you guys don't look like you've got anything to do. You know, I'm going to start a kingdom. Would you follow me and be my disciples? No. He went to a bunch of fishermen that were working. Mending their nets and so on. One was a tax collector, one was a, you know, budding uh, medical student or whatever. But, uh, you know, they were all involved in something. Uh, Moses was involved looking after his father's flock. Elisha was plowing with his father's uh, oxen and so on. It's always the busy people that God chooses. People that are willing to make something happen in that sense. And when I say make it happen, obviously we can't make it happen in our own strength. But we have to be laborers together with him. We have to cooperate with the Spirit of God and so on. And so God will never use a a lazy person. I've never known him to do that anyway. So they said, let us go and make a a place, prepare to uh, work. The next thing is their submission. Number five, it says there, they ask permission and they say this. Pick it up in verse three. They said, please be willing to go with us, uh, be willing to go with your servants. 
In other words, they consider themselves servants. That's a good uh, perspective to have. I am a servant. We never grow out of being servants. Is that right? They don't even refer to themselves. Listen, would you go with us young prophets? You know, thank God somehow Elisha got through to them. It's not, uh, you know, some sort of title. And no matter what title you do have, ultimately you have to be a servant. I have uh, always been uh, challenged by a, a verse in Luke chapter 12, and uh, let me uh, just turn to it here uh, for a moment. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 35, it says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast. So they uh, will say to them immediately, Open the door. When he comes and he knocks, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself and serve, and he will have them recline at table and will come up and wait on them. And notice who the master is. The master is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the sort of climax of all human history when the bride and the bridegroom you know, finally united and so on, and they're uh, there at the uh, reception, if you like. The chief waiter is the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's it. He, he will gird himself and he will serve. You know, be dressed in readiness, waiting for the master to return, and when the master returns, all of a sudden he turns around and begins to serve us. That's the nature of God. That's the character of God. He's not play-acting. He's not saying, well, I'm just going to show you I can play the role of a servant. He is a servant. God is a servant. You know, if I can uh, wash your feet, you should be able to wash one another's feet and so on. It's important that we keep that mentality that we are here to serve, serve one another, serve the Lord, and so on. And thank God that these young men have got that message. And so they go... And again, they ask permission, please go with us, be willing to go with us. They are in a place of submission. We will never again achieve anything spiritually until we learn to submit. If you can't submit to earthly authority, you can't submit to heavenly authority. Very, very important that we learn again to submit to the authorities that are over us and so on, and even those that may be hard in some ways and so on. But there's something about submission. That, uh, that is vitally important. In fact, the opposite of submission, obviously, is rebellion. And the moment there's rebellion in your life, then you've already aligned yourself with the enemy because that's why the enemy is the enemy today. He rebelled. Isn't that right? Rebelled about, against God uh, and so on. Spiritual warfare will never get anywhere unless we understand submission. Paul deals with that first before he says, put on the whole armor of God. The whole chapter before that and the, the verses before that is submit to authority. Wives submit to their husbands. Husband, you know, submit to God in the way you treat your wife. Uh, parents, um, uh, don't uh, provoke your children. Masters, you know, make sure you recognize you too have a master. Servants, uh, obey your, your masters. And then he says, put on the full armor of God. Why? Because the Bible says the devil will not flee until you what? Submit yourself to God. And not just God in the, in the sense of God himself, but into any authority that God has established. And so uh, being a servant is vitally important here. And so they uh, arrive now at uh, where they are heading. They come to the, uh, the Jordan. And I want to uh, now focus on one individual. We've gone from a group of individuals that have uh, made their plea 
But now we come to one individual. This individual now has uh, arrived with the other students, and he is cutting down the trees. They are ready to expand their operation, build a new Bible school. I don't know all the, the details. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But what it does tell us is there's uh, this one man, and I'm sure there's a little bit of competition like any young, young man. You know, I'm cutting down more trees than you, and there's uh, the guy on one side of you, guy on the other side of you, they're cutting down the trees, and you've got a bigger stack than the other, and you're feeling good about yourself. But anyway, he's thriving. He's uh, accomplishing his goal. He's got a vision. He's uh, making that vision happen. He's uh, cooperating again with the Spirit of God, if you like. And then all of a sudden, everything falls apart. In, a, in just an instant, he loses his cutting edge. The Bible says that his axe head flew off. His axe head flew off. And he is rendered powerless. One moment he's got power. One moment he's got efficiency. One moment he's seeing things uh, take place. The, uh, the logs or the, uh, the trees are coming down one after another and so on. And I imagine, you know, there was a, a sense of... Uh, uh, feeling, boy, we're accomplishing something. We're getting somewhere. Our vision is getting fulfilled. This is what we dreamed about. We've talked about this for weeks, about expanding. We're finally here, uh, and so on. And then just in that instant, he loses everything, and he is absolutely powerless. That axe head flies off, doesn't just land at his feet. It lands in the river behind him and disappears. And as we know, steel does not float. And so he has got a problem on his hand. Spiritually, I believe there's a lot of people that have lost their accent. In other words, they've had a vision, they've had a call from God, they've set out, they've uh, begun to work for God in some capacity. They've been doing well, they've been seeing results, whether it's with a children's work or evangelism or pastoral work, I believe all over America today. In fact, I, I do some teaching on surviving the anointing. 18,000 ministers a year lose their axe head, if I could use that, uh, that uh, analogy. 18,000 ministers, men in most cases, women in some cases, that have been called of God, gone through some sort of Bible school seminary, actually had a congregation and 18,000 a year leaving the ministry. Number one reason, sexual immorality. Uh, number two reason, burnout and the contention in the congregation and various other things. But, uh, you know, here were people that had a vision and all of a sudden they lost everything. And here is a young man again. He is now standing there absolutely powerless. We need a cutting edge. And I'll explain that in a moment. But uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, it says, If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen the, uh, the edge, he has to exert more strength. If the axe is dull. Uh, I notice a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, logs around here as we've uh, driven around, and uh, Quinton uh, took me around quite a bit yesterday, and I see, you know, piles of logs. You guys obviously have log fires, way, way more than we do down in the south. And uh, chances are you use a chainsaw these days, but maybe you use an axe, but uh, either one, if that edge gets dull, I've got a chainsaw at home, and when that thing is uh, sharp, it is a delight to use. You can just slice through limb after limb after limb, just as though you're slicing through butter. But after that, uh, uh, chainsaw loses its edge. I mean, you can put all your weight on that thing, and it just burns, literally burns its way through, and you can smell the burning. It will not cut at all. You know, but spiritually, we need to have a sharp edge. 
Isn't that right? And the Bible says if it is dull, you've got to exert more strength. In other words, you've got to labor more. Like the disciples, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. And Jesus comes along with just one word. He says, you know, try fishing over there. And all of a sudden, you know, the carpenter is a better fisherman than the fishermen themselves. And the nets are full. And uh, we need to listen to the voice of God. But I believe the Acts represents something. It represents the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. I believe the Acts head represents the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it in our own strength. In other words, we need the assistance of the Holy Spirit. This man could not chop down trees or cut down trees in his own strength. Even if he was a good karate chopper, you know, I'm sure it would take him quite a while to, you know, take care of it. I've never seen anybody. Concrete blocks split pretty easy and impress people. But, you know, you go at a piece of wood with your hand. I doubt if you could ever do it. But uh, it's the fact that he had something in his hand that enabled him to do what he did. And you and I have been given something. We've been given the Holy Spirit. Isn't that right? And I believe that's, the, uh, that's what the axe head represents. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that God has entrusted us with, a tool if you like. And I don't use, like using that word tool necessarily, but just the analogy. That's what we need. We can't do it in our own strength. We have to tarry in Jerusalem until we have the access, so to speak. Once we have the access, uh, access, then we are able to do things that we could not do in the natural. This man was powerless once the access was taken from him. But he's lost it now. And the Bible says that he cried out. So the next thing is his desperation. He cried out. That is the right response. When something happens, your cry should be proportionate to what you've lost. Let me say that again. Your cry should be proportionate to what you've lost. If you lose a penny, chances are you don't cry out. Isn't that right? After all, it's a penny. My wife loves, uh, incidentally, my wife is back home. She's feeling very, very tired and fatigued and so on. She's here, but she's not here. But uh, she may be here tonight, hopefully. But uh, she loves picking up pennies. I just walk all over them, you know. Couldn't care less, you know. But uh, they're not worth anything. You know, it's a penny, you know. That's all. We don't cry out. Now, if a gal loses her engagement, uh, you know, the stone out of her engagement ring, chances are she's going to cry out. You know, if we lose something of value, the fact that he cried out was proportionate to what he lost. This thing was absolutely essential, and hence the cry. And if you don't have what you should have spiritually, there should be a cry. A cry, a longing, a deep longing. God, I need this thing. I, you know, we go to God in prayer and whatever that price that you've got to pay to get that thing back. But it, uh, it may be prayer and fasting and so on. But uh, the cry has to be proportionate to the thing that you've uh, lost. And I believe God is looking for a cry today. Why did he cry Another reason, and the next thing, his obligation. Alas, Master, it was borrowed. Alas, Master, it was borrowed. It's one thing to lose something that you own. That's painful enough. But it's far worse to lose something that has been entrusted to you. It it doesn't belong to you. The Holy Spirit does not belong to you. 
The Holy Spirit has been entrusted. Again, alas, Master, it was borrowed in that sense. I remember about uh, 10 years ago now, maybe something like that, my wife and I were invited to uh, go out to Colorado. And our daughter and uh, four grandkids, uh, we have eight, but uh, the, the family that has the four, were living there in Colorado Springs. And uh, my meetings are about 60 miles south down in Pueblo. And uh, while I, uh, the, the gentleman that called me knew that our, uh, our family was uh, living there, and he said, uh, you're coming out for the weekend. And he said, uh, if you want to, you can extend your trip four or five days if you want to be with your family. It's going to cost us the same to fly you out regardless of what day you, you go back. It was over the 4th of July weekend. And uh, so we said, that'd be great. You know, we'll go for an extra uh, few days. And so while I was with him, he uh, had a number of cars. And he said, listen, you're going to need a car while you're uh, up in uh, Colorado Springs. I said, no. I said, kids have got a couple of cars. And he said, no, you know, you better take it anyway. And we didn't really argue, but I, I sort of, you know, really didn't want to take his car. He was a military guy, and everything was absolutely immaculate. You know, he just had that military uh, part of him, and the, the house was immaculate. His car, it was a, the one that it, we ended up borrowing was a little uh, Volkswagen Jetta, but it had a special sort of trim, and the thing was absolutely, you know, spanking brand new sort of condition, and so on, but he insisted we take it, and so uh, uh, we took the car, and uh, we were going to drop it off at the airport. He was going to drive up and pick it up, and we had it all arranged, and uh, got to my uh, daughter's house, and pull the car up. They were in a sort of gated community at the time that they were renting this house. And um, first three days, didn't even use it. Just sat there because, uh, you know, we went in the van with the uh, grandkids and so on. And, and then uh, it was the night before the 4th of July and uh, my daughter had arranged to meet with some people and have a barbecue and so on. And she was bringing some food and she said, Dad, would you mind following us in the car? We can't sort of all fit and, uh, and so on. And so we uh, proceeded to follow him, came home that night, uh, pulled the car up to the uh, uh, front of the garage and hopped out, and I helped her unload uh, the van and took some things inside, and that was that. About 6 o'clock in the morning, there was a knock on my uh, our bedroom door. My uh, granddaughter said, Papa, Papa. And, you know, I'm sort of, you know, what's going on? And she said, uh, your car's down the driveway smashed into a tree. And I'm thinking, what car? I don't, you know, you know what it's like here. You're away from home. And so sure enough, I get up and I, you know, look and the, the tree, it looks like it's just gone down the driveway, down a little a bit of an embankment, stopped it. Uh, it looked perfect, you know. So I went back to bed and uh, <laughs> got up a little later. She had to meet somebody and help somebody. And so she was up early. And so I got up. Finally, I went down and inspected the car. And uh, it was... Uh, it was a mess. It had, back, it had got down into the street and literally almost wrapped itself around. There was a ball uh, cap in the back seat on, on the ledge behind the car that was actually gone through the rear window and was about six feet, you know, just an ordinary uh, baseball cap. So you can imagine, you know, it must have hit with quite a thud. We had to pry that thing to get it to go, and then I had to make that awkward telephone call. And I remember her name was Kim, and... Uh, uh, Kim answered the phone, and uh, I said, uh, I need to talk to your husband. And she said, oh, he's already gone fishing. He's left. I said, well, Kim, I've got some bad news. I said, I smashed up your car. Oh, Brother Randall, you're always trying to have a joke, you know. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my, if only I could say that, you know. And finally, I had to convince them. They had to come. Alas, Master, it was borrowed. 
if it had been my car, you know, it would have been bad. But the fact that I borrowed somebody else's, you can imagine this man. Alas, Master. It wasn't mine to begin with. It was entrusted to me. The Spirit of God has been entrusted to you. And every single one of us here has been entrusted with a gift. The gift of the Spirit of God. Maybe one of the gifts of the Spirit or whatever. And no wonder this man cried out. That's the cry of desperation. God, I've got to get back what I've lost. I know what it is to taste the things of God. I know what it is to operate under the anointing of the Spirit of God. I know what it is to see people healed. I know what it is to move in a prophetic realm or whatever it may be. But Lord, I've lost that thing. I've lost it. The next thing is his confession. He goes to Elisha, and Elisha said, where did you lose it? Where did it fall? Where did you lose it? And the Bible says he showed him the place. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where did you lose it? Some of you can look back over five, ten years and say, listen, there was a time in my life where I used to pray a lot more. There was a time in my life where I used to lead people to the Lord all the time. There was a time in my life where this or whatever. But, you know, if I'm honest this morning, I have to say I've lost it. That anointing that I used to have, that passion for missions or whatever it is, you know, where do you lose it? And the Bible is full of individuals, obviously, that uh, lost it. Samson lost it when he broke his vow, that Nazarite vow. Balaam lost it when he began to compromise his uh, gift there and merchandise his gift and, and so on. Naomi and Elimelech uh, lost it when they left Bethlehem and they went into Moab and so on. As a result, uh, you know, lost uh, family members and, and so on. I mean, the Bible is full of individuals that once were flourishing. Demas lost it when he could not control his love for the world. And Paul has to write with tears and say, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. I mean, the Bible is full of individuals that lost it. Is that right? Saul lost it when he disobeyed Samuel's uh, word. Here he was, anointed, prophesying along with all the other prophets, but he lost it. Samson lost it, again, when he compromised. All of those things, men that had an anointing, women that had anointing. And here is a young man, and he's having to face the fact, listen, where did you lose it? I've talked to people over the years. They lost it when they went back to looking at pornography. And they knew, listen, I shouldn't go there, but they did. And something happened in their life. They lost it when there was a root of bitterness that came in because of some sort of business deal. And, you know, they've never forgiven that individual. You can lose it for a thousand reasons. Isn't that right? Jimmy Swaggart, one of the greatest preachers, Sort of the Pentecostal Billy Graham in many ways, and yet he lost it when he started going out after prostitutes. Ted Haggett lost it when he got involved again in a homosexual situation. Todd Bentley lost it when he began flirting with one of the teammates and walked out on his wife and children, ended up marrying her, and so on. All it takes is that sin where, you know, all of a sudden the Spirit of God is grieved, the Spirit of God is quenched, and you lose it. I'm not saying you can't get it back. You can. That's a wonderful ending to this story. But uh, there's a lot of people have lost it. And we need to be honest. Show me where. Tell me where. The prophet is saying, take me to the place you lost it. I'm asking you to go back to the place you lost it. 
Again, it happened because of this or it happened because of that. Most of us know the season in our life, if not the actual act in our life, that caused, again, the grieving of the Spirit of God. And so he has to go to a place. (coughs) The next thing is his provision. It says, when he showed in the place, when he showed in the place, what does Elisha do? He throws in a stick. We know that a piece of wood will not make a piece of iron float. Isn't that right? But it's amazing what a stick can do. Moses had to face a situation where they came to the waters of Marah. The waters were bitter. It was impossible for the people to drink those waters. And what does Moses do? He takes a stick and he throws it in. And all of a sudden that stick changed that water to drinkable water that would satisfy the needs of the million or whatever people that came out of Egypt. Just an old stick, what we would call today the old rugged cross. There is an answer to every situation. It has to go to the cross, or the cross has to be applied to that situation. It doesn't make sense to the natural mind how an old rugged cross can change a situation, give you back that thing that you've lost, a thing that has been taken from you. And yet here he is. He had to show him the place. In other words, he had to be honest. Listen, I know exactly it was right here. I know the night. I know the day. I know the the week when that thing happened. And then, God, I'm going to go and I'm going to apply the cross. Thank God for the cross tonight. Cross of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Again, the blood can cleanse from all sin. And so God has a provision. Thank God for that. And the last thing, his restoration. That piece of uh, iron floated. It became visible there on the surface, but uh, Elisha did not take it. He said to the young man, you've got to pick it up. You've got to take it. You know, God will do so much for us, but we've got to reach out in faith. We've got to appropriate the fact that God is willing to forgive me. I've transgressed. I've lost something in my life, but I've got to be the one that reaches out and claims that thing. No man of God can do it for you. Here was a man of God. He could have picked that thing up and put it back on the shaft, I guess. But he says, listen, you've got to take it up for yourself. And here is a young man, again, reaching out. God did the miracle, but we've got to apply that thing to our life. And some of you this morning, you've got to reach out. Believe again that it's possible. Forgetting those things which are behind. God is the God of the second chance, aren't you glad? And the third and the fourth, for that matter. You know. His patience is incredible. And he's made available restoration for your life. Whatever that is, and it maybe could be 20 or 30 different situations here this morning. If you were honest to say, listen, I need restoration in this area. Somebody else, restoration in that area, and so on. The cross is able to take care of every single one of those situations. But you've got to be the one that appropriates it. You've got to be the one that reaches out. This man, again, was able to restore that thing that he lost, got back that cutting edge, got back again that ability to function according to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. And God wants to do that for you this morning. That's the God that we serve. He's not here to condemn you. He's not here to rebuke you. 
In that sense, he's here again to restore you. God is a God of restoration. He can restore the years, the locusts and the cankerworm have eaten. Not the weeks, but the years. And I don't know if I'm speaking to somebody here, it may be years, where you've given up. You think, you know, I blew it, and somehow the enemy has come in. I have a guy that calls me on a regular basis from Israel. He woke me up about 4.30 one morning, don't know him from Adam. Since then, he's continued to call. Thank God I told him the hours difference, but he believes that he's blown it, that he's committed some sort of unpardonable sin. I've done everything in the book to try and convince him, and he, he just believes that God has given up on him, you know lovely young man and, and, and so on. He had a cutting edge. He told me I used to, you know, function in the things of the Spirit and operate in the things of the Spirit. But he said, you know, I've grieved the Spirit of God too much and so on. And I gradually over a number of months now, literally, he calls me out once a week and so on, sent him emails trying to encourage him, listen, God has not given up on you. You know, God is a God that seeks ways to bring back his banished ones, the Bible says. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if you have been listening to the voice of the enemy and you say, listen, it's too late for me. The years have gone by. God is a God that restores the years. The locusts and the cankerworm have eaten. He wants to put that axe back in your hand and give you that ability to function normally and, uh, and supernaturally. That's about, that's what the cross is able to do. But again, you need to appropriate it this morning. Our time has gone, but uh, let's uh, just stand to our feet as we close. And I don't know what you're used to doing here, but uh, these altars are available. If you want to come forward, we'll be glad to pray with you. If there's a worship team wants to play, that's uh, fine. If you want to just meet God right where you are, I'm not uh, impressed with the size of altar calls. I gave that up long ago that my message isn't based on how many people come to the altar. But at the same time, in a crowd like this, I know there are individuals where you know you need that sense of God's presence once again. Something has left, something has departed, uh, you've lost something. They say, this is the morning where I want to reclaim that by faith. I'm going to reach out and believe that the God is able to restore that area of my life. Give me my prayer back, uh, life back. Maybe it's just the fact that you've uh, sat down, you've evaluated your life, and you say, listen, I'm not where I should be. place where I'm at is too small. I'm too confined. I don't read my Bible the way I should. I don't pray as much as I should. My knowledge of God's Word is not what it should be. I'm restricted. I'm confined. I want to break out. I want to move on. I want to advance. The Christian life is always one of advancement. Isn't that right? We go from faith to faith, victory to victory, increasing and abounding in the knowledge of God. There's never a place where we arrive in our Christian life this side of eternity. We should always be advancing. We should be able to look back uh, at the end of any given year and see that we've grown spiritually in some way where God has come become more and more real to us if that hasn't happened then again we're losing ground and if that's where you're at this morning again these altars are open if you want to come kneel, sit, stand whatever just come and let uh, God meet with you this morning this is uh, we pray Father we just thank you again for your word this morning thank you Lord you're the same yesterday, today and forever Lord, you're one with no variableness, no shadow of turning. Lord, your power has not diminished over the years. You're still at the very zenith of your power. And Lord, you're able to do, as we heard this morning, exceeding abundant above all that we could ever ask a thing. God, you're a God of restoration. 
the God of the second chance, the God that wants to put that axe head back into our hands to achieve the goals that you call us to achieve. Father, I pray your blessing. Lord, your anointing on lives today. Father, you would just uh, give them again everything that they're longing for. Put a cry within them. Lord, if that cry is not there, Lord, put that cry there. Let them see, Lord, the, the value of that which they've lost, Lord, that they wouldn't just treat it as, uh, as being something of, of uh, little importance. God, you've given us your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, for just an increase. We say, Lord, like the disciples, increase our faith this morning. God, we want to be strong and do exploits. We don't want to have a mediocre life. We don't want to just settle down, Lord, into a place of complacency and indifference. Father, we want to press on, apprehend everything that we've been apprehended for. Touch lives, I pray. In Jesus' name.